I'm reading Psalm 102, 102. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my plea. Don't turn away from me in my time of distress. Bend down to listen and answer me quickly when I call to you. For my days disappear like smoke and my bones burn like red-hot coals. My heart is sick, withered like grass, and I have lost my appetite. Because of my groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. I'm like an owl in the desert, like an owl in a far-off wilderness. I lie awake, lonely as a solitary bird on the roof. My enemies taunt me day after day. They mock and curse me. I eat ashes for food. My tears run down my drink because of your anger and wrath. For you have picked me up and thrown me out. My life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. I am withering away like grass. But you, O Lord, will sit on your throne forever. Your fame will endure to every generation. You will arise and have mercy on Jerusalem. And now is the time to pity her. Now is the time you promised to help. For your people love every stone in her walls and cherish even the dust in her streets. Then the nations will tremble before the Lord. The kings of the earth will tremble before his glory. For the Lord will rebuild Jerusalem. He will appear in his glory. He will listen to the prayers of the destitute. He will not reject their pleas. Let this be recorded for future generations so that a people not yet born will praise the Lord. Tell them the Lord looked down from his heavenly sanctuary. He looked down to earth from heaven to hear the groans of the prisoners, to release those condemned to die. And so the Lord's fame will be celebrated in Zion, his praise in Jerusalem, when multitudes gather together and the kingdoms come to worship the Lord. He broke my strength in midlife, cutting short my days. But I cried to him, Oh my God, who lives forever, don't take my life while I'm so young. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth, and you made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them. But you are always the same. You will live forever. The children of your people will live in security. Their children's children will thrive in your presence. Everybody, have you ever wondered what life would be like if you didn't feel any pain? Like if you never had any kind of negative physical or emotional experience, wouldn't that be wonderful? No pain, no anguish, no anxiety, none of that. Well, actually, there are a few people on the planet that have this condition. It's very rare, like one in 125 million people have a condition where they actually don't feel any physical pain. And one of these ladies actually became an adult without realizing that she had this, which kind of makes you wonder about her life up to that point. But, but the reason they figured it out is because she told some of her girlfriends after giving birth to her first child that, 
it's, they totally overrate how bad it is. It was, it was like a tickle, and then it was over. And so they took her to the doctor thinking, something is wrong with this lady. They did an interview with a guy named Stefan Betts, who has this condition. And he said, you know, most people think a life without pain would be like having a superpower. Like it's something that actually is on the forefront of medicine is how to deal with pain. He's like, but it's actually a nightmare. It comes with so many complications that most people who have this condition never make it to adulthood. And it's not just because of the external pain. Usually, in fact, it's something internal, something unseen, that for a normal person, there would be all kinds of red flags and signals and things to let you know that something is wrong that they never experience. And by the time they figure it out, it's too late. It's the great dichotomy that actually you cannot live a fully human life. You, you really can't even make it to maturity without pain. Pain is a necessary part of the human condition. In, in some ways, we might say pain is actually really good for us because it anchors us in reality. The problem with people who don't experience any pain is they actually don't live in the real world. They're oblivious to things that are actually happening, really important things that should get their attention, and they miss them completely. Pain anchors us to what's really going on in the world. It, it clarifies our vision for what is happening out there and in here. The Psalms are on to this because the largest group of Psalms are about being in some kind of pain. The, the biblical word for this is lament, the lament psalms. What do you do when you're in pain? How do you cry out to God? How do you talk to God about things when things are not going well in your life? When you're experiencing pain on the outside, as our psalmist today, pain on the inside, pain emotionally, pain physically. If you have pain in your life, you should feel at home in the psalms. There are over 56 lament psalms that talk about what it's like to go to God with, when things are not going well. But somebody did a study not too long ago about the number of lament psalms in the Bible and the number of lament songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. And the ratio is completely and totally off. We sing very few lament songs, especially if you think one-third of the psalms are lament and less than that are just overt praise Lots of them are confession. Some of them are looking forward prophetically to what God is doing. You have all these things, but the greatest portion of them is lament. And the smallest portion of our worship songs is lament. Why? Because nobody wants to come to church and sing dirges. Nobody wants to do that. We want to come in and sing peppy, uplifting, great songs. And there's, there's a good reason for that. But what this study found was, if you don't connect to lament somewhere, if you don't have an outlet somewhere to express the pain that you feel before God, you will never reach adulthood as a Christian. Your prayer life will be anemic. Your experience of God, your knowledge of Him, your closeness to Him will be limited and what the Psalms do is they actually bring us to the place where they stretch us to be complete, whole, spiritual, emotional people before the Lord. 
Commentators from every different part of the church and all throughout church history have noticed the power of lament in the Psalms. One of them, Ellen Cherry, who's a commentator on the Psalms, calls lament pain-seeking understanding. I love that. Another pastor, Robert Smith, calls it praising in the dark, which is a great phrase for what it feels like when you're lamenting. But I want to give you a definition of lament this morning as we dive into Psalm 102. And this, this definition has two parts, and you're going to see these two parts in this psalm. First of all, lament is a tension between two things. The refusal to pretend about what's going on in your life, and the refusal to forget God's faithfulness and character. So on the one hand, you are, when you are lamenting, you're refusing to pretend about what's going on in your life. You're honest with God about what's happening. But at the same time, and this is what separates lamenting from complaining, you are also refusing to forget who God really is. And so what you see in the Psalms are writers like our psalmist this morning who is standing and, and in one hand holding on to the fact that I can bring my whole true self to God and holding on in the other hand that God is faithful and good and kind and will make things right in the end. And if you find yourself stretched between those two things, you are lamenting before God. So there's examples all over the Bible of this happening, and I, I want to give you a couple of examples to highlight one of the most important things about lament, which is lament is a way of channeling our honesty and frustration and pain to a place of trusting in God's faithfulness. What lament doesn't do that you see in the Bible is cry out to God and stops when God actually fixes all your problems. See, what you see in the Bible is very few times when people lament, does God fix everything in their life? Instead, what God does is he draws near to them, he changes them, he meets them, he walks with them so that they change, even though their situation is still the same. So think about Job. Job is the great lamenter of the Bible, and honestly, he may have the greatest case in the Bible of lament. He was a righteous man, he was doing everything right, and his life completely fell apart. The story of Job is, goes to show that there's nobody who has a better track record than Job and nobody who has suffered more than Job, so somewhere in the middle is your life. So Job is this righteous man. He begins to suffer, and he starts out his lament in chapter 3 by saying, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor shine light upon it. Pretty low right here. This is a pretty honest lament. God, I wish I had never been born. That's a refusal to pretend about the way you feel. But look where Job ends up. And, and the story of Job, he loses everything that he has, and then, you know, at the end he regains it, but, but the change in Job happens before he regains anything. You realize that in the long dialogue of Job, the, the plot resolves before God gives him sons and daughters and possessions and land again. It resolves in, in verse 42 where after God speaks, here's Job now. I know, O Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Notice the change. Everything is the same on the outside of Job. 
But he went from, cursed be the day I was born, to I had heard about you, I knew of you, but now I've seen you in this suffering. That's lament. There's a book of the Bible called Lamentations. If you're lamenting, that's a great place to start. That's why it's called Lamentations. It is the paramount lament in the Bible. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet. A couple of years ago, we did a sermon on Jeremiah's life, and he says in his book, Jeremiah, his prophecy, I wish that my head were like a fountain, because that's how many tears I am crying. He lived through the worst period of Israel's collective life when the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they take people into exile. It is the worst thing that happens in the Old Testament. And he starts out Lamentations as an ability to be honest before God when the temple has been destroyed. He says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, and the enemy has prevailed. One of the interesting things about Jeremiah's life is he actually never sees anything get better. He doesn't see the restoration of Israel that will happen years later. He gets taken to Egypt against his will, and he's held there in exile until he dies. But at the end of Lamentations, after he laments and he's honest with God, here's where he, he, he gets to. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. You see, on, in one hand, Jeremiah has, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And in the other, I know who God is. And I know that his mercies are new and will never cease. The last example I'll give you is the prophet Habakkuk, who lives slightly before Jeremiah, who's seen the conquering of the northern kingdom. And Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord for the injustice that's in the world. These other people have seen destruction, but Habakkuk is arguing with God's very character. How could it be like God to let his people be forsaken? He starts his book saying, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Basically, why are you doing nothing? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk lives through this period of time just holding on to a promise that God is going to make things right in the end. His book ends with one of the more beautiful passages of the Old Testament. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive may fail, and the fields will yield no crops. The flock may be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. And that's the way his lament ends. So, so I want you to notice something in all of these laments. One, if you hear their complaint and you think that sounds like something you shouldn't say to God, these are spirit-inspired words. God can handle the deepest description of how we're feeling. God can handle our anger. He can handle our pain. He can handle our loss. In fact, if you 
are looking through the scriptures, you will find so many places where people say things that you think to yourself, shouldn't really be saying that to God. That sounds awfully ungrateful for what he's done. And then at the end, what you see is these people, by going before him and refusing to cover up and put on their Sunday best in their prayers, but just to be real with God, by the end you see that even though their situation hasn't changed, now they're praising God for his faithfulness and his enduring mercy for them. Now you see the same thing in our psalm this morning. We actually don't know who wrote this psalm, but we have this title that says, A Prayer of One Who is Afflicted. A prayer of one who is afflicted. And we get some descriptions of what this person is going through. They say, my days are like smoke. They are hard to see through, and they are dissipating, and my bones burn like a furnace. You almost think this person has some kind of fever or something. My bones, as Nancy said, are like hot coals within me. I've lost my appetite. I'm lonely. I can't sleep at night. Nothing tastes good. We might think that this is clinical depression. Maybe that this is actually more emotional than physical. It feels like God has taken me up and thrown me back down. Have you ever felt like that before? Chances are all of us will feel that way. And notice that this this psalmist is not afraid to say, it's not just random circumstances that happen to me. It almost seems like God is doing this to me. It feels like God has taken me up in the air and just dropped me back down to the ground. My days are like shadows. I am withering away like the grass. In fact, all through the Psalms and in the Old Testament, this metaphor of grass is used for human frailty. So we read in our, in our passage last week, actually, because there's a connection between 102, 103, 104, and 105 about how to transition from lament to trust. And in that passage as well, it says that all humanity is like grass. It's here for a day, and then it burns up, and it's gone. It's, it's a reminder to us that actually our condition is frailty. One of the things you have to realize in, in lament, and we don't love to talk about this, but our condition as human beings is to deteriorate and destruct and die. And What the psalm reminds us of is when you get sick or when you're sorrowful or when you're mourning something, that actually isn't a change in your condition. It just reveals what your condition truly is. That the moments you feel most out of control and like you you don't have any say in what's going on to you, that, that actually is your baseline. As opposed to the way we live most of our lives, like we're in control, and we're indestructible, and we're invincible, and then God reminds us all of a sudden, no, 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 human life is like grass that is there, and then when the sun scorches it, it is gone, it is dead. Particularly in the scope of eternity, what is one human life? Nothing. It is a blip. It is like a vapor. It is like the dew on the grass that is there for a moment and then burned up by the sun. And what the psalmist is helping to remind us of is as much as we live our lives trying to escape that, we can only see the true character of God when we realize and admit that that's the condition that we live in. That's the condition that we live in. You know, one of the reasons we know that this is true is because Jesus, who was the greatest person to ever live, and he did everything right, and he was God in the flesh, and he was the hope and the promise of God for all of his people, he didn't live an easy life. 
And if Jesus didn't live an easy life, then you're like, okay, then nobody is entitled to an easy life. Jesus lived a short, brutal life and was put to death in the end. And you're like, and that's God's son that that happened to? So a reminder to us that as much as we try to avoid it, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And then he says, no servant is greater than his master. If you follow Jesus, your condition is the same for now. There's a history of reading these lament psalms as a group. There are seven penitential psalms in the book of Psalms. They are Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. And people as early as Augustine in the fourth century started grouping these psalms together and writing little booklets on these psalms, partially because up until fairly recently, most people were well acquainted that life can be really miserable. And so what these theologians would do is they would take these psalms that are laments, that are helpful to express yourself to God in difficult times, and they'd put them together in little scrolls and little books, and they'd put commentary next to them so that you could read them constantly and be ready for what life has coming your way. Some followed in the Middle Ages, and they began to connect these psalms with the seven deadly sins. So there's seven of these laments. And there's seven deadly sins, and so somebody somewhere was like, I need something for this Sunday sermon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show how the Psalms and the seven deadly sins go together. And so people started using these almost like a medicine to rid your life of these besetting sins. And I just mentioned this to, to make one connection. Some of our lament is not because physical things are happening to us or emotional things are happening to us. The, the other layer of this is that our sinful nature is something that we lament. It's not just that we're in pain because other people did stuff to us. Sometimes we're in pain because we did stuff to us. We, we've actually made the bed, and now we're lying in it, and God's saying there's lament for that too. So a pastor described it like this. There's a lumberjack who comes into a forest, and he's taking a look around at all the trees, and he knows that over the next few weeks, he's going to cut down all these trees. And so he's surveying the area, and he sees that there is a mother bird who's just begun making her nest in one of these trees. And so he goes with his axe and starts banging on the tree to try to get the bird to move. Well, the bird you know, starts swooping at him and pecking at him and trying to get him away. So he goes back, and he starts shaking the tree and sure enough, the bird gets up and leaves, and the next day he finds the bird again in another tree. So he does the same thing, and he's shaking this tree, trying to get this bird, and he does this again and again and again until finally the bird goes and makes its nest in a rock face. And then he begins to clear the trees. The point of the first part of lament, the, fail, the, the refusal to pretend that our life is something different than it is, is to embrace the fact that all the trees that we can build our lives on are coming down. Give it long enough, everything you can build your life on is going to be chopped down. Your health, your reputation, your accomplishments, your family, all of it will eventually come down. Which leads us to the second part of lament. God is the one who's going through and shaking all the trees to lead you to a place where you can build your life that will never fail, 
that will never fail. Because see, like I said, what, what separates complaining or maybe at this point depression in the Psalms of realizing our condition is only to lead us to the fact that we can recognize God's character even more clearly in moments of lament than we can in moments of joy. See, the the two parts of lament are you have to see what life is truly like. As much as you hate to admit it, you have to pray about what's really happening in your life in order to see the character and faithfulness of God in these psalms. So you notice in all the examples that I gave you, it's not just a clear description of how bad things are. It's a movement towards the firm reminder that God is faithful forever. Our psalm does that this morning in verse 12. After giving this description of how terrible things are, the psalmist turns and says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all generations. You will arise and have pity on your people, and you will bring a time of favor in the appointed time. See, the the second part of these laments is that in our deepest description of our pain is where God promises to meet us, promises to be present with us, promises to reveal himself to us, promises to make sure that we become mature and fully formed Christians, able to endure to the end to be with him when we never have to lament again. See, what happens in this psalm is what's happened in so many of our others, especially when we talked about fear, is that a three-letter word in this psalm changes everything. The word but. It's a reassertion of what is really true about God and what is true about us. Oh, Lord, I've used every word I can think of to describe my situation, but you are eternal. You are enthroned forever. He does this again. You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, right? This is the whole universe has the longevity of an old pair of socks, but you endure forever. You are unchangeable. You will never fail. You have never been in trouble. You have never had to regroup and rethink about what you're going to do. You have never been in a spot where you didn't know how you were going to get out of it. You, God, you, you are so powerful that the way you experience time is like you see it all in an instant. And you've made plans that fit every moment. See, the psalmist, he, he begins to speak into his heart in the midst of his pain what he knows to be true about God, just like Jeremiah, just like Job, just like Habakkuk, just like Jesus, who on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, if you look at Jesus' life, the Psalms were constantly on his lips. He, he ends up describing almost every moment of his life with Psalms. You know, when he's baptized and the voice comes and says, my son in whom I love, I approve of him, listen to him. That's a quote from the Psalms. When Jesus is tempted, he goes to the book of Deuteronomy, which is rephrased all over the book of Psalms. When he's hanging on the cross, he he says the opening line of Psalm 22, and we focus, I think, to our detriment too much on the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from saving me from the words of my groaning? That's how Psalm 22 begins honest, refusing to pretend. 
And in fact, you can go through and get a description of the cross that is almost perfect. But do you know where Psalm 22 ends? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That that lament that Jesus was speaking on the cross doesn't stop with being forsaken. It, It ends with, God, you are enthroned forever. It shall be told of the Lord. These are the last lines of this psalm. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus was doing that for you on the cross. And you know that this entire psalm was in his head. Jesus was in the process of lament on the cross, being honest with God and remembering why he was there, what he was doing, why it was worth it, what it was going to be like, what God's character was like in the end. So our psalmist today reminds us that in our lament, we should reaffirm what we know to be true about God. Here's three things that our psalmist remembers. First, he remembers that God's nature is unchanging. God's character is unchanging. God will never shift from what he is now and what he has always been. And this sounds like kind of an abstract theological point, that God is unchangeable. But here's why it matters. God is unchangeable. That means he can never be any better than he could be right now. Because if he could get better, then he could change. Or if he was going to downgrade and not be as good as he once was, he could change. But he is as great as he will ever be. He is as loving, as just, as holy as he will ever be, which means every experience of God from now for all of eternity, you're going to get the same God, the same thoughts about you, the same plans for your life, the same power, the same strength. You're going to get that from now all the way through eternity. He is the most trustworthy person you could ever imagine because he never changes. And he is never in trouble. He has never been in a bad situation. God doesn't have any bad days. And he never will. And if you are with him, that means that when you spend eternity with him, you will never have any bad days. Because if you're a Christian, if you trusted in Christ, the barrier between you and God has been broken down. You can be in relationship with him and your life is like this a convergence with God such that he says when he talks about heaven, not it's going to be a wonderful place, but I am such a wonderful God to be with. He is unchanging, unfailing. And the psalmist remembers as well that God is a relational presence for us. It would be one thing to comfort ourselves with abstractions. And you hear this when people comfort you when you're grieving the platitudes and things that probably sounded good in the moment, and then they say them to you, and you're like, of all the things you could have said, that was so empty, so hollow, so machine-pressed that it actually made things feel even worse. The reason for that is because grief, generally speaking, is not because we're trying to figure out the logical way to conceive of our life. It's that your life is like a web of connections and relationships with people. And grief is that something you love has been altered. Someone has been lost. Something you hoped for has been dashed. Something in your web is like a rock fell through the middle of it. 
And now there's this gaping hole where that person or that thing used to be. And part of why grief is so difficult is because every time you want to get around your web conceptually, now you've got to forge an entirely new path. Where that person used to be, you could go straight to them. Now you've got to take the long way. Where all the memories that you had made served you in the past, now they've actually turned and remind you of grief in your future. It's, it's a relational problem that you're going through when you're grieving, which is why what God offers in grief is not to fix things, but to come and be with you in the middle of it. It's like God says, I will be the one who comes and fills the hole that you're experiencing. In fact, God's only promise to most people in trouble in the Bible is, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will be present with you. I will make myself available to you. I will comfort you. I will walk with you. And that is his promise for us. Because what we've got to realize is what we're grieving can never be fixed by a statement. It can only be fixed by a person. And that person promises in the end to make everything right because he'll be with us forever. So when you think about what Jesus talked about with mourning and with grief, it ties into lament so well because he says, blessed are those who mourn, which is a crazy thing to say, right? And he knew that, right? All these Beatitudes in, in Matthew, if you're here for our Matthew series, all the Beatitudes have one interesting quality. The first half makes no sense without the second half. No sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. These are just nonsensical things to say, unless you say something afterwards like, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. You can be blessed when you mourn because in some way God designed you and the universe that never mourning, never feeling pain is actually second best to feeling pain and being comforted by God. And we may never see that until eternity. We can't wrap our minds around that completely now. So when we mourn, we are mourning in hope that at some point that beatitude will come true in our life. It was better to mourn and be comforted by God than to never mourn at all. The last thing he remembers is that God's provision for eternity. This psalmist is kind of a theologian in the sense that they lay out all the big themes of the Bible in this psalm. God will come back for his people. He will rebuild Zion. He will send missionaries to the corners of the earth. And people who are not born will come to know God. And generations to come will praise him. And heaven itself is going to be amazing because God looks out on the earth and gathers people. I mean, this is amazing theology that this person is saying. But it's all based on this one fact. God will provide in eternity. It's like Corey Ten Boom says, God has no problems, only plans, only plans. And lament is the journey along that plan, seeing maybe one day at a time clearer and clearer who God really is. To where at the end of the psalm, he brings, to, he brings us to the place where his situation hasn't necessarily changed, but he has changed, and he has met with God, and he has seen him comforting him, and he says, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. What is one human life that you can't correct and comfort and change? All of this universe will wear out like a garment. You will change them off like a robe, and they will pass away 
but even then you will be the same. You, your years will never end, and the children of your servants will dwell secure. Their offspring will be established before you. Paul puts it this way, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Nobody wants to come to church and listen to a sermon about grief. Okay, I get that. I understand. But every one of us will grieve. And when you do, you need to know that that is not an aberration. That is not something that separates you from God. That is not something where God has withdrawn from you. That is not a sign that maybe this whole thing isn't true. We need to know that when we walk through a situation like that, God is not surprised. He is not withdrawing. He is not punishing you. He is inviting you to be honest with him. He is inviting you to see his character, and he is inviting you to see his plan for eternity, where he will bring all things to the place where we can say, God knows what he's doing. So as we conclude, I want to go back to the lumberjack, and I want to talk just for a moment with you about where you might be in this story. Maybe God is shaking your tree right now, and you're building what looks like a wonderful nest in a very sturdy tree. But the the problem is, all the trees are coming down. Every single one of them is coming down. And the most loving thing that God can do for you is to stand there and shake the tree that you're building on. And in fact, once you leave there and go to another one, don't be surprised if God shakes that tree as well. Because the way Jesus puts it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, the fool is the one who builds his house on the sand, but the wise man who listens to God's word and does it, that person builds their house on the rock. In fact, the most loving thing that God can do for us is shake every tree that we try to build on until we come to the rock, which is Christ, the one in whom you can put all of yourself all of your pain, all of your joy, all of your anger, all of your discomfort, all of your temptation. He can hold all of that for all of eternity if you trust in him. So we don't lament the same way that the psalmist did in Psalm 102. We actually lament with a clearer, more certain hope that we have seen God's plan through Jesus. And in this world, we will suffer, we will mourn, we will lament, things will pass away, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, this passage is quoted one time in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 1, where the author of Hebrews is trying to make the case that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is different than any person or any being who has ever been created or whoever will live, and he's grasping for things to say, and he comes to this psalm, and he says... He is the one who is enthroned forever. He is the one who is remembered throughout all generations. And in chapter 13, he says, you can trust in Jesus because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change his mind about you. He will never go back on his death for you. He will never stop walking with you. And so in our lament, we can be both honest and faithful that our God will never leave us or forsake us. Let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and the heaviness of lament weighs us down. Father, we do that just so we can remind ourselves how faithful you are to us. Lord, that your son was sorrowful, he was moved, he was rejected, he was beaten, he suffered, he died, and in all of that, you have glorified him, and you have raised him, and he is perfect and living now and forever. 
Father, help us in our own struggles to come to you and be honest with you. Lord, our greatest prayer is that in the midst of our struggles and lament, you would meet us in a way that surpasses anything we could do for ourselves. Father, we ask this morning by your Spirit that you would strengthen us with promises about your faithfulness and your character. Lord, even now as we come to the communion table, we're banking on the promise that you are going to sustain us and come back for us and bring us to eternity with you forever. Father, we trust you. We trust in your word. We trust in your promises. We trust in your character this morning. So fill us. Meet us, Lord. Fill us with joy, even for those of us who are lamenting this morning in the knowledge of walking with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and continue to worship, we're going to take communion this morning. And the way that we take communion here is we come to the front and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, or you can take a cup from this tray if you prefer. And the reason we do this is because Jesus, right before he suffered the worst fate that he could imagine, he got his disciples together and he says, hey, as often as you get together, I want you to take bread and, and take this cup, and I want you to remember that the worst thing for Jesus, his death, provided the greatest thing for us, eternal life with him forever. So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, we invite you to come to this table to remember God's sacrifice, the, the lament that Jesus mentioned on the cross and the faithfulness of God to come back and return for us and take us to be with him forever. So this morning as you respond, the first step is to come and take the bread, take the cup, celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus, and we'll continue to worship.